Hi friends, future Jillian here. I just wanted to pop in really quick and give you guys kind of a warning, but not really. Um, just a friendly reminder that you were listening to our earlier episodes. So at this point, we were still kind of figuring out our groove and figuring out what we were doing. And so please don't judge us on these ones. At least give some of the newer ones a listen. We really got into it around episode four or five, but we got our new microphones in episode nine. So you will notice quite a bit of a sound quality difference if you're listening backwards from our newest episodes to our first episodes. So just wanted to give you guys a heads up and thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Murder and Misery. We are your hosts. My name is Heather. And I'm Jillian. And we are back together for another episode for you guys. Okay, so just like the Mary Vincent one, I am going to put a trigger warning on this for sexual assault. So if that is something that upsets you, then maybe skip this one. So this story involves the Chain of Rocks Bridge, which is located in the St. Louis area, about an hour from where we live. Honestly, we live right next to a little town that's called Chain of Rocks, and I always thought the bridge was there because I'd heard about this story before. Isn't it like in St. Louis? Yeah, it's like it's in St. Louis, but I always thought it was in Chain of Rocks. In Chain of Rocks, Missouri, which is like a town. But I found that out when I was looking this up that is actually in St. Louis. So anyways, here's a little background history on the bridge. The Chain of Rocks Bridge is a unique looking bridge with an interesting history. The colorful name comes from a 17-mile stretch of rocky water rapids called the Chain of Rocks. This begins just north of St. Louis. Multiple rock ledges just under the surface of the water make the stretch of the Mississippi look extremely dangerous to navigate. Not look. is extremely dangerous to navigate. When the bridge was designed, it was supposed to be a straight 40-foot wide roadway with 10 spans of trusses, the crisscross steel things at the top. All went according to plan, except for one major change, the direction. According to the National Park Service website, riverboat men protested the planned bridge because it was to run near two different water intake towers for the Chain of Rocks pumping station. The local river captains complained that navigating the bridge pier and the towers at the same time would be extremely treacherous for vessels and barges. Also, the initial straight line would have put the bridge over a section of the river where the bedrock was insufficient to support the weight of the piers. Either way, it was decided that the bridge had to bend. So, of course, this design change is what gives the bridge its unique look. It has a 30-degree turn midway across the mile-long bridge, and it stands more than 60 feet above the mighty Mississippi River. For more than three decades, the Chain of Rocks Bridge has been a significant landmark for travelers during this stretch of the historic Route 66 highway. Because the bridge has not been significantly altered over the years, a visit there today conveys a strong sense of time and a place, an appreciation for the early 20th century bridge's construction, and the outstanding views of the wide Mississippi River. The Chain of Rocks Bridge was listed in the National Register of Historic Places in 2006. However, all of this positivity surrounding the bridge was put to a halt in 1991. This is when sisters 20-year-old Julie Carey and 19-year-old Robin Carey visited the bridge. Both were students at the University of Missouri in St. Louis. In 1991, either late on April 4th or early in the morning on April 5th, Julie, Robin, and their 19-year-old cousin Thomas were at the Chain of Rocks Bridge. It was said that the sisters had taken their cousin, who was visiting from Maryland, Thomas Cummins, 
to the bridge to show him a graffiti poem that they had painted there sometime earlier. Another friend named Holly was supposed to go with them. However, she decided not to go last minute. Holly was actually with them when they originally painted the poem. When they were on the bridge, they encountered a group of four men they had never met before. Marlon Gray, Antonio Richardson, Reginald Clemens, and Daniel Winfrey. The two groups talked for a bit, and then the men said that they wanted to show the girls and their cousin a manhole cover, which would allow them to go down to one of the piers on the bridge. Then after this, the two groups kind of separated for a while, and according to their cousin, several minutes later, the group of four men decided to rob them. He said Marlon Gray told them that this is a robbery, get down on the ground. The two girls were grabbed and held on the ground. Without going into detail, the men allegedly took turns sexually assaulting the girls. Thomas said that this was when they robbed him of his wallet, his wristwatch, cash, and keys. The three victims were forced down the manhole cover to the concrete pier. He said the two Carey sisters were then pushed and then Cummins jumped as instructed by the men. Police initially refused to believe Thomas's version of the events. They theorized that the other men never existed and that he had made up the story to cover up his attempted rape of his cousins. They believed Julie had fallen off the bridge while resisting his sexual advances and Robin had to jump in to save her. And they both ended up drowning. That's what happened? They drowned? They, yes, they I was they, wondering because you said um, the police didn't believe his story, so I was like, wouldn't the girls be able to say? Right, sorry. No, that's okay. I uh, just didn't know. Thomas was initially charged with the murder, but released due to lack of evidence. He later won a settlement from the St. Louis Police Department for wrongful interrogation techniques. According to Marlon Gray, he went to his car to smoke a joint. He said his buddy Antonio Richardson said he had to go back to the bridge to get a flashlight that he had left there. Marlon said that after about 30 minutes, he went to see what was taking Antonio so long, and when he got there, the girls and their cousins were gone. The version given by Gray at his trial was different and also differs from what police said that he had told them in his initial interview. This time, he said that he was waiting in the car, but after 30 minutes, it was Reginald Clemens who came back to the car and said, Man, I just robbed that guy and threw him and the girls into the river. Daniel Winfrey, who was just 15 years old at the time, actually confessed to the murder in the presence of police and his parents. He pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and, and forcible rape and testified against the other three in their trials. He received a 30-year sentence, then he testified that Clemens and Richardson were the one who pushed the two girls. Winfrey was granted parole in the summer of 2006 after 15 years, but according to the Post-Dispatch, he violated his parole and went back to prison. Antonio Richardson was given a death sentence. However, it was commuted to life in prison by the Supreme Court of Missouri in October 2003. Thomas testified that it was Richardson who pushed the girls off their bridge, but Clemens and Gray were also tried and convicted of first-degree murder as accomplices. First degree? Mm -hmm. Wow, the first guy got second degree murder. I listen really well to what you say to me. I know it's hard to believe, but <laughs> that's what you told me. Because they all the murdered the same was... person, though. Right. The kid, well, the kid said that he didn't actually do it. He was just there. So that's why he only got second degree. Because he said that the other two were the ones that pushed the girls and that he was just an accomplice to the murder. I got you. So then... So, then Clemens and Gray were convicted of first-degree murder as accomplices. Reginald Clemens was sentenced to death, but his conviction was overturned in 2015. On December 18, 2017, Clemens pled guilty to five counts, two counts of second-degree murder, two counts of rape, and one count of first-degree robbery. 
He was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Marlon Gray was found guilty and sentenced to death. Gray's execution date was set by the Supreme Court in Missouri for September 26, 2005, which was carried out later that year in October, death by lethal injection. Gray was 38 at the time of his death. Medical witnesses testified that Cummins and Julie Carey survived the 48-foot fall to the water below. Cummins testified that after surfacing, the current pulled him over to Julie, but then she drifted off after he began to drown. Cummins swam to shore and survived. The body of Julie Carey was found three weeks later near Carthersville, Missouri, about 150 miles downstream. The body of Robin Carey was never found. Thomas Cummins, Thomas Cummins has had to testify about that night multiple times. Believe it or not, the prosecution's star witness has transformed into a key witness for Clemens himself. I didn't research too much into this, but now the person whose testimony played perhaps the largest role in getting Clemens the death penalty is considered a witness whose testimony could get the condemned man off death row. There's been a lot of controversy surrounding the conviction of the four men due to the claims of racism, as all but Daniel were people of color, but I'm not here to debate the validity of those claims. However, I find the topic of the poem the girls painted on the bridge to be coincidental. Their friend Holly said in an interview that they had chosen the poem, Do the Right Thing, to paint on the bridge because of its theme of calling for unity and an end to racism. Quote, we were dealing with a lot of that at the time. We decided we wanted to say something about us that showed who we were, and that's how we came to write what we did. Said, united we stand, divided we fall. It's not a black-white thing. We, as a new generation, have got to take a stand. Unite as one, we've got to. Stop killing one another. At the sister's funeral, mourners were given a scroll as mementos. Printed on it were the words taken from the bedroom walls of Robin and Julie. Quote, Give to the world the best you have, and the best will come back to you. Let the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill each other. If love comes from the heart, where does hate come from? Let's not teach our children hatred and prejudice. And Julie's own personal mantra was, Who says you can't change the world? The bridge, once part of the beloved Route 66, has a rich history and is on the Natural Register of Historic Places, Trailnet, a nonprofit that advocates for better walking and biking resources, managed the bridge under a long-term lease from the city of Madison, Illinois, and raised over $5 million in capital funds for enhancements and operations. The bridge remains open as a pedestrian bicycle bridge from a half an hour before sunrise to half an hour after sunset. And that is the murder at the Chain of Rocks Bridge. Sheesh. I did not know where this was going in the slightest when we started. And I did not know that story. Um, And I am surprised. I didn't either. I'd heard of it. Uh, Who requested this? Antina? Well, Antina and my mom. Oh, okay. But, I mean, when they talked about it, I thought this was something that happened a long time ago. But this happened in the 90s. Which was a long time ago. Right, but I was almost alive. Right? Right. But you're 25. <laughs> you're yeah. a quarter of a day. Okay, well, let's talk about how quarter old of, we are. Quarter of a century old over here. But some of the other cases were, like, from the 70s, so. No, I know. You know? Yeah. But I had heard about the Chain of Rock murders. I didn't know how they were carried out. And... I had never heard of it. 
Ever. Like, not a single time. Which, okay. here's the thing. I do hear about things and have a terrible memory, so it's possible that somebody had mentioned it to me. But I have no memory of anyone ever saying anything to me about that. I feel like since it did happen a long time ago, like, with a lot of these murders, unless you have friends that talk about this stuff for fun to you because they know you're interested in it a lot of these stuff gets swept under the rug yeah for sure never talked about again Hmm. but yeah so uh it's interesting that the the one that came forward and confessed and like um kind of seemed like he was trying to do the right thing got out on parole and then violated his parole and had to go back to prison yeah it's kind of a bummer he's in his mugshot so he's like I don't know, he looks like he's in his, like, 40s or something, you know? He's older. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, well, he was really young whenever he had to go to prison, so I'm sure that 15. that really changes the way that everything changes everything. Right, well, especially because, I mean, like we talked about in um, the Heidman case, like, they grew up in prison, mm-hmm. and it's crazy, mm-hmm. like, how much technology changes, like, going in there and they're... Not being cell phones, not being texting, not being social media, not being really internet or anything like that, and then coming out to, like, pretty much a whole new world. It's crazy. Well, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about, like, how traumatic being in prison is. Yeah. And I know that we've talked a little bit about, you know, ideally prison is a place where you have some sort of reform, but that's nearly impossible with the prison system that we have today, just by, like, literal trauma that happens inside of the prison yeah so and i know that obviously there are lots of feelings about people who go to prison and what they deserve and what they don't deserve but it is by no means a safe place especially for a child Mm-mm. and so i mean i i have some personal friends who have spent years in prison as somewhat grown adults and still to this day like one of my very close family friends um, was in, like, one of the worst prisons in the States. And to this day, he will not talk about what happened in there. Right. And most people, like, he is an anomaly. But most people cannot live a regular life after prison. So, like, it's a huge topic and like I said a lot of people have a lot of feelings but the way that we have it set up now like there's little to no hope for anyone ever having reform because if you weren't traumatized and totally messed up beforehand and you just got into a sticky situation you are totally messed up when you come out yeah Yeah, which is why I'm glad he got restitution or is it restitution uh like what did I say he sued he sued the St. Louis... Oh, Thomas. His yeah, settlement. the cousin. Yeah, settlement. Is it called restitution? I have no idea. Anyway. So I'm, I'm smart, but I'm got... also stupid. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm glad he got his check, though, because I don't know how long he ended up... I don't know that it matters. Like, sure, I mean, well, yeah, that's what I'm saying, but... Even just a, a short amount of time, like the sleep deprivation, the fear, like all of that, the way that your body handles just the situation in general, like... It is not a healthy place to be. That's why scared straight programs exist. I have one of my friends, her dad was a hor- like horrible teenager. This was before the TV show. And he went to prison for one night and it changed his entire life. And he, you know, went from being like 
a kid who was getting into trouble every day to be an, an outstanding citizen because literally 24 hours in that prison made him never want to go back there again. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah. And it's a, it's a hard topic because obviously some people are not safe to have in society. But it makes you think about the type of people that go there and, like, the reasons why people go there and, like, do they really deserve what they experience. Yeah. But at any rate, we could I'm inter- sad that these people died. Right. Um, yeah. Rest in peace, Julie and Robin. Rest in peace, Julie and Robin. I'm glad that Thomas was able to, like, get his story out there and was not, like, falsely... I guess, kept in prison. I guess he went for a short period of time. That he was able to clear his name. Yeah, and get the settlement that he deserved just because I can't even imagine, like, we've talked before, like, I can't even imagine going to jail over something that I literally did not do. Like, I I can only imagine what his experience was like and for the girls as well, but, like, literally laying there while your cousins are sexually assaulted, like, that would be a horrible thing to experience. And then you get robbed, and then you get, um, like, you watch your cousins get pushed off of a bridge, and then you have to jump off the bridge, and then you watch your cousins drown. Like, what a horrible experience to go through. Like, absolutely horrible experience to go through. And then you're just trying to get help and say, here's everything that happened to me. And then the police say, nope, you made it up. Right. It was clearly you. And not even just to make that part up, but, like, to accuse him of doing that to his cousins. Ju- yeah. Is actually absurd. Them. So, I can, like, I just can't even imagine, like, how confusing that would be to be accused of all of that when you just experienced all of these horrific things. Right. And he was only 19 at the time, too. Yeah. And he's literally just trying to visit his cousins. Right. From out of town. Like, <sighs> I... I can't even imagine what that would be like for him. And, like, obviously also for the girls. But I'm just thinking, like, you had actually said in the first episode, I don't know if you remember, about when I was, like, really dogging on Betsy's husband about not going over to check on her or whatever. And you were like, well, a lot of times people go and they're freaking out and then there's blood all over them and then the police come and they're automatically accused. Like, this is kind of, this made me think about that of... He's literally just trying to get help, and his cousins are nowhere to be found. He's probably assuming that they're dead because they got swept away in a river. Right. And he's literally just trying to get help, and the police are like, nah, you're going to jail because you clearly sexually assaulted your cousins, and you clearly made up the story. Yeah. So it just gave me that kind of a vibe. So it makes me think about things a little bit differently. Well, I'm glad I made you see things differently with my thoughts on Russ, but... I think it's important to see, like, police and law enforcement in general as, like, human, right? Like, unfortunately, they make mistakes in both directions. Like, like I said earlier, they made a mistake before about not being skeptical, and now they made a mistake of being too skeptical, and I want police to do their job the right way, don't get me wrong, but I think it's just another, like, reminder of... They're human and they make mistakes, which sucks. Right. I'm just glad they were able to find the correct people and to, um, you know, hopefully give 
Carrie and Julie's family and also Thomas some closure knowing that the people that did this to their family is paying the consequences for it. Yeah, 100%. Also, I wonder how that might have affected their family. Like, when Thomas is like, oh my god, I just witnessed all of these crazy events. And then the police are like, no, you clearly are the one who committed all these crimes. Like, think about the family that he's staying with who've just lost their children. And now they're hearing that their nephew did all these horrible things. So even... I feel like even when your name is, like, quote-unquote cleared and you're let out of jail and maybe you get the settlement, like, I don't feel like you can just erase those feelings. Like, um, the girl's parents, you know what I mean? Like, the crazy emotions that they must have felt thinking that Thomas had done all these horrific things to their daughters. Right. Well, we don't, well, I will say that we don't know if they knew he was innocent from the beginning or, because I know with the... Pam Hub case, everybody, like, all of Russ's friends knew that he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, but, but then like, as Betsy's on, daughters right, testified against him. That's what so. I'm saying. As it went on, then they were, like, then her daughters, like, went against him. I was like, okay, maybe he did do this. But we don't know what the situation was with them. But I can only imagine. Even just hearing really, it, though. Right. And I feel like, especially then, um, now we have some, we have some like, don't believe everything that you hear kind of a thing. But in the 90s, if a police officer came to your door and knocked on the door and said, your nephew Thomas raped your daughter, you would be like, oh my God, my nephew Thomas raped my daughter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they were such an authority and not that they aren't an authority now, but I do think that a lot of people are now realizing that police officers are human beings. Um... And they're just people, just like you and I. Mm-hmm. But I do think in the 90s it was a little bit different. Where, like, if a police officer said something, you were like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I'm just thinking about, like, the time difference. I'm so, thinking about Freedom Riders. Because I was, like, in that time. And, it, I mean, it really was, like, at least around here. I know in other parts. But we live in, you know, the Midwest, so... I think things were definitely a little bit different here versus like because mm-hmm. I know the riots and stuff were happening around this time in California. Yeah. I'm just thinking like I'm just thinking what it might have been like. Obviously I have no idea what it was like. I'm just thinking how that might have changed their family dynamic. Yeah. Well definitely I mean even losing your daughters changes everything. I don't I don't know I don't have any um updated information on you know their parents I assume that they're still alive. Um, same with Thomas. I don't have any updated information. Hmm. But uh, we do hope that they do have some sort of closure. And Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and condolences to their entire family. Yep. These stories obviously suck to talk about. but And there's never a good way to end them. Yeah. Because there is, like, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a good ending that the correct people were sentenced. There's some sort of justice held here, which is is a good thing, a little bit different than the last episode that we did, but... At the same time, there's really, you know, you you can say there's really no justice when two two young girls lost their lives for no reason. Yeah, it's just, it's a sucky situation. Um, the only good that come out, that's come out of it is that the people who deserve to be punished are punished. But right. 
At any rate, we will be sure to include our resources in the show notes so that if you want to see if you can find any further information, feel free to do so. If you want to reach out to us, we do have a TikTok and an Instagram. Feel free to message us on Instagram if you want to or leave a comment on any of our posts. If you want to request a case, feel free to direct message us. Just make sure that your first line is like, Heather, don't read this. And then I can show it to Jill and she can research your case. Otherwise, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And we will be back next Thursday with another episode. All right. That's, I think that's it. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye.